Perhaps you've purchased a vehicle before. Maybe you have a car you own or you've been part of the blessing of getting a vehicle. Um, over the years, we've bought uh, many different vehicles. I remember years and years ago when Judson was just a, just a wee pup, probably not even a year old. No, maybe he's about a year old. Um, we had, uh, had a little bit of money that uh, we had kind of our family car, but I needed a car. And uh, through the course of one thing and another, I had, I had, a, I had $1,000 in my pocket. And uh, this was 20 years ago. So I was going to use that, that um, $1,000 to go buy a car. And uh, for what it's worth, even 20 years ago, $1,000 was not going to get you much of a car. But anyway, I had $1,000, and I remember thinking, okay, this is going to have to be like one of those scenarios where you happen to find the right car in the right situation. And, and I remember uh, getting in, in our, our other car with my son, and he was pretty little at the point, and I prayed with him that the Lord would guide us to the car that we should buy. And I remember driving through town, and uh, literally saying, okay, Lord, just show me where to go. And um, true story, I felt like the Lord said, go left here. So I drove left, went a little further, felt like he told me to go right here. So I turned right here and then took another left and drove by this white Chevy Astro van. And, um, and it was like that. I just I drove by it and went, hey, that looks like a good car. And uh, so went in, talked to the owners, and actually on the window it said $2,000. I thought 1,000, 2,000, it's only one digit off. So <laughs> I went in and talked to, the, uh, talked to the people, and we looked at the car. Well, inside the car was a for sale sign that it was on the floor that said 4,000. And so apparently they had lowered the price. It was kind of near the end of the year, and it was a business vehicle, and I think they just needed to, just to get rid of it. So uh, we drove it, and that seems like a good deal. So I told the person, I said, well, I've got $1,000 cash in my pocket. And you could just see the look on their face, like, what? A thousand dollars? And uh, I said, that's all I got. And she said, I can't sell for that much. I said, okay, it's fine. So I walked away. She followed me out and uh, ended up, we, we cut a deal at $1,200. And uh, that was a great, great car, actually. We drove that for a little while. My kids and I called it the white van. It was the white van. It was a Chevy Astro van, all-wheel drive. That thing was awesome. Anyway, it was not pretty, but it was awesome. Uh, loved it. Uh, actually, then, uh, a little while later, uh, the Lord led for us to buy. Actually, we bought Sight Unseen, a van out in San Francisco. And it was a big GMC 15-passenger van. And I had found it through the Internet. You know how that goes. And actually... Uh, talked to Jessica Graff, who was teaching out at a school out there, and asked her if she knew anybody in her church that knew cars, and she said, yeah, so-and-so does, and so I talked to so-and-so, and and, uh, -and so-and-so looked at the car, called me back, said, looks good. He said, honestly, if you don't buy it, I'm going to buy it. I said, okay, I'm in. I'm going to buy it. So I gave the dealership my credit card. I did pay for it the next month. I didn't pay for it with my credit card in that sense, but I gave him the money, and my dad and I flew out. And uh, bought the car, drove it back. And uh, first time I'd ever bought a car sight unseen. And uh, that was a good vehicle. Actually, that van, we drove it for about five years. I think it was a good van. Uh, actually, one time I bought a car, um, kind of impulsively. I bought a, uh, a little minivan. And I bought it at one of these bargain, de- bargain dealerships up here in, in town. 
and uh, we needed it. We needed a we needed a vehicle, but I went. I test drove it, and I remember coming home and showing it to my wife. So let's just buy it, and uh, ended up doing it. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't think we consulted real much on it. I don't think she felt super comfortable with it. I liked it. It was a good car. Come on, let's just buy it. And uh, it was a headache. And I'll tell you what, I shouldn't have bought it. I think looking back, I shouldn't have bought it. There's a number of reasons why I shouldn't. But after about two years, the whole brake system just completely went out. And we had to essentially uh, give the car up for loss. And it was a bad choice, actually. I did a very poor job on buying that car. You know, I should have, should have been more careful. I uh, should have looked to the Lord in a different way. I, I, I really don't. I really didn't. But to me, I think one of the greatest stories of our purchasing a car was uh, right, right around the time we got married, my in-laws offered to uh, help my wife and I, and uh, they bought us a car. And we were younger at that point. And uh, so when they offered that, as a young man, I started to get all these ideas of what kind of car I wanted, you know, Italian, uh, two-door, 12-cylinder, just kidding. Um, but I did. I kind of had, in my mind, you know, I was a little bit younger. I thought, well, I want to have something a little bit sporty. And so we're kind of talking about this and that. And, and uh, well, my father-in-law had a little different idea. He was thinking reliable. I'm thinking sporty. And so I remember we, we kind of looked around at a couple cars. And then he brought us to a dealership of a friend of his. And there was a car that was a Buick LeSabre. No offense to Buick LeSabres, but it did not capture my attention. It wasn't like I looked at it and went, oh, man, that's cool. <laughs> Definitely wasn't my thought. So uh, we drove it, drove nice, seemed like a good scenario, but oh, I don't know. Well, let's just keep looking. Okay, so we just kind of set it aside. And um, After maybe, maybe a week or so later, uh, my father-in-law came up with an even better scenario. And this was a car that was five years older. Uh, than the one we had test driven, and it was a Chevy Century, I think is what it's called. It's pretty much like a like a box. The thing was just a box, and uh, had it been in some you know elderly lady's garage most of its life, and had you know like twenty thousand miles on it, it's a really good deal. And I remember just the horror of you know I didn't want to drive the old Buick. I really didn't want to drive the old whatever. Uh, and uh, okay, this is this is this is a little bit of a true story. So, um, no, I'm saying okay, no, it's a true story in every way. But um, I don't even know what I was trying to say. So I'm not even going to try and rebound from that. This is entirely a true story. Um, we, um, wow, well, I I got to think about that one. Okay, so. Um, so the, the potential of us getting this older lady's car was right there. And uh, I remember just thinking, oh, wow. Okay, Lord, I get it. I'm sorry. I was not thinking right about this thing. And, and uh, I remember driving by the dealership with the Buick, the one that we had test driven. And they had moved the car. Do you know on dealerships they have those, those platforms they can put a car on to kind of you know, signal it, like set it apart from all the other? And it was right there on the corner of the lot, that Buick. And I remember thinking, oh, man, today I want that for sure, not the other one. And um, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it, but I'm telling you, I got humble before the Lord. I said, okay, Lord, I get it. I wasn't thinking right about this thing. And uh, we ended up buying that car, actually. We, as in my in-laws, but uh, bought us that car. That was a 1993 Buick LeSabre. And uh, you know, to be honest with you, that was a great car. That car was a great car. It actually drove very nicely. Um, it was very comfortable. We drove it for years. And... Uh, 
good mechanical car. It was actually the right car for us. And uh, do you know I didn't like it at first? It just didn't capture my interest. It didn't seem fancy and flashy and sporty, and, but it was the perfect car for us. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate how the Lord used my father-in-law, especially to guide us into that, uh, that car. Do you know, finding the will of God for our lives is often, uh, can often be elusive. Have you ever tried to make a decision about something, what's God's will, and it just feels elusive? Uh, it seems confusing. It seems difficult. Uh, It might be as simple as buying a car. It could be something life-altering, like what ministry should I pursue or where should I go to college? I think some of you just came through that decision. God has a personal interest in our lives. He's concerned about our well-being and our future. More important, he has a wonderful plan for our lives. And I want to challenge you with this thought today, and that is simply that God's will is beautiful. God's will is beautiful. You know, God has a will for your life in every, every nuance that's beautiful. And it should be our pursuit to know God's will and to move toward his will. You might be familiar with these verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable. And say the last four words. And uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, We're supposed to dedicate ourselves to the Lord so that ultimately our lives can demonstrate His perfect will. Um, Although God is sovereign, He's given us a free will to accept or reject Him. And this not only applies in salvation, it applies to His plan for our lives. God has a perfect will or a perfect plan for us. However, because of sin and disobedience, most of us end up coming short of that perfect will to varying degrees. The more we live in disobedience, the further we move from God's perfect will. However, besides his perfect will, I made this term up, God has a redeemed and restored will for us. And I think my life I've experienced that redeemed will or that restored will where I have acknowledged I, I missed the mark and said, but God, I want your will from here on out. Um, this is God's plan for uh, this. Uh, this plan for God takes into account all those things we gave up by not following his perfect will. And he actually makes this new way beautiful. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis 49. Here we are at the very end of Jacob's life. And uh, Jacob has just made some prophetic um, statements about his sons. That's what the, essentially chapter 49 is about. And so I'm going to pick up here at verse 29. Genesis 49, 29. And he charged them. This, of course, is Jacob speaking. He charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers. In the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite uh, for a, a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there 
I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein is from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. Do you know the difficulty in determining God's will in any given matter is typically not that God isn't clear in revealing his will to us. And I think the uh, older you get, the more you're going to understand what that means. Uh, God is very good at expressing his will to us. So when you're trying to determine God's will in in a matter, whatever it might be, buying a car, uh, determining anything, whatever, uh, trying to determine God's will, the difficulty is not God's inability to communicate his will to you. I hope you understand that. What makes the determination of God's will difficult or unclear is because we get distracted by our own wills in the matter. The determination of God's will for our life is not a matter of God making his will clear. He makes it clear. God's very good at revealing his will. It's a matter of us getting past our will to recognize the beauty of his will. So let me ask you a question. We're going to talk about this a little bit. What does God's will look like? What does God's will look like? And I want you to go back a couple chapters to Genesis 29. And I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the family life of Jacob. And uh, you might remember some of this story. I'm assuming you've read it before. But uh, Jacob uh, ended up having to go back uh, to where his mother was from to find a wife. And the circumstances were a little bit unusual. He was actually fleeing from his brother who had made a death threat upon him. And uh, God prospers him on his way. He has a dream, uh, really an interaction with the Lord himself at Bethel. And uh, ends up then in Haran and uh, comes upon uh, these two ladies here. So look at Genesis 29, and uh, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. You know, actually, I'm going to go back a little bit further. I'm going to go to 15. So this is now when Jacob is, he's brought to Laban's home. And uh, verse 15, Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel. And uh, you remember the story. He came up with this this swap, seven years of service to marry Rachel. Do you remember that story? Um, It's interesting as you read here, uh, what did Jacob not do before he set up this whole... um, contract with Laban. What did he not do? You know, he, he meets these ladies and, and um, goes and meets their dad. And uh, dad says, well, you should stay here with me. You know, you're, you're a relative of ours. You should stay here. And he says, that's a good idea. Well, let's, let's work out a deal. You stay here and, and uh, if you serve for me seven years and you can marry my daughter. He says, oh, that's a good idea. I'd like to marry Rachel. Okay, sounds good. Seven years. Let's make it happen. And uh, so they come up with this deal. Seven years to marry Rachel. And uh, what does Jacob not do, at least in the story? There's no indication of it. What does he not do in uh, coming up with this this deal with his uh, soon-to-be father-in-law, Laban? And you don't have to answer, but what does he not do? He doesn't pray about it. He doesn't ask God. He doesn't say, okay, God, what what should I do now? Now, he's had an interchange with the Lord uh, weeks earlier in Bethel. 
But now here he is, and, and this is a pretty significant life decision. He's going to work for this man for seven years. He's going to marry his daughter. And uh, you have no indication of the passage that he even asked God, God, what's your will in this thing? Now, you might remember, if you know the story, that uh, Jacob's grandfather uh, was concerned about a son for Jacob's dad. Do you remember this in the story? So uh, Jacob's grandfather then sends a servant up to this same area. And he says to the servant, I want you to go find, I want you to find a wife for, uh, for my son Isaac, uh, Jacob's dad. And uh, in that story, remember how the servant goes up there? It's kind of similar, actually. He goes to a well and uh, sees this lady there. Uh, very, very similar uh, to the situation. But there's a huge difference between those two stories. And that is Abraham's servant prays about it. In fact, Abraham's servant demonstrates in, in, in a number of ways. He was very sensitive to God's will. And he prays, and Lord, you've got to guide me in this. You remember that famous uh, phrase there, Genesis 24? Um, after the servant of Abraham finds Rebekah, he says this, I being in the way, the Lord led me. And uh, Rebekah is a great story of just how God provided for Isaac uh, directly, uh, miraculously, God provided. But Jacob in this story is a little bit different. In fact, we see here uh, a comparison between Leah and Rachel, and I think you can pick it up. Verse 17 describes it. It says, Leah was tender-eyed. Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And uh, there's a little bit of debate what tender-eyed means. So I'm just going to assume it means that she was, uh, she was plain. There was nothing remarkable about Leah. She was tender-eyed. Um, and I say that because it seems like there's a parallel between beautiful and well-favored and the description of Leah. Now, it could be that there are any other number of ways that tender-eyed could be viewed. But I'm going to view it as she was just a... She was just a just kind of a plain lady. Nothing remarkable about her. She was just, oh yeah, there's Leah, and then there's Rachel, is kind of how it appears to me. So maybe some of you Hebrew people can disagree with me on that, but that's fine. So uh, apparently Jacob uh, was drawn to Rachel because she was prettier, right? Do you see that in the passage? Hopefully you're following with me. She was prettier. And uh, so he says, I got a good idea. I'd like to marry Rachel. I will serve seven years in order to marry Rachel. So what happens there? Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. Laban said, it's better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. That's very romantic for sure. Seven years he's serving, and it's just, it's like nothing. Wow, he just can't wait to marry Rachel. But uh, believe it or not, seven years is actually still seven years. And seven years is a long time. And if you are still sitting here seven years from now, you will have been in college for a very long time. And uh, seven years is a long, long time. And um, so uh, I don't know all of how home life worked for them in those days, but I would assume in those seven years, Jacob had opportunity to interact with the fam. That's my assumption. So I'm sure he and Laban had discussions, probably about business, probably about sports, probably about whatever, camels. Uh, they talked about things. <laughs> my guess, though, is that Jacob and his daughters had opportunity to talk. Now, I can't 100% prove that, but I would say that I'm sure in just the course of life, he had opportunity to talk with both of those ladies here and there. So when he makes his deal, how much did he really know about Rachel? You know, I'm talking 
at the well, you know, dinner the next night. How much did he know about her? Nothing. He knew she was pretty. How much did he know about Leah? Nothing. He knew she was Leah. So he didn't know much about either. So my question is, over those seven years, did he get to know anything more about those ladies? Well, I would think even if he didn't interact with them much, I don't know how it goes in in the Laban home, he probably still learned something about them. And I wonder if in those seven years, he could have learned something important about either, but didn't because he was so focused on what he wanted. So then here's another question. Who did God want Jacob to marry? We know who Jacob wanted to marry, Rachel. And we know why. It says it pretty clearly in here. Rachel was beautiful. Leah was just Leah. But who did God want him to marry? All right, so I want you to notice then, secondly, as we think about this, I want you to think this way. You know, God never contradicts his word with his will. God never contradicts his word with his will. So let's go back to the story here. 29, 21, Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast, and it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for, uh, uh, his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said unto Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. All right? Uh, here's the thought. Uh, this is deep. Do you know God never contradicts his word with his will? And I am... Uh, Here's a life principle. Polygamy is a bad idea. Okay, it's actually more than a bad idea. It's wrong. I think you can prove it biblically that polygamy is wrong. Genesis 2 gives the model. Jesus confirms it. And Paul makes it a qualification. And that is one man for one woman for a lifetime. And uh, polygamy was never a good idea. It might have been practiced by some, but it was never a good idea. And if you think through the Bible record, it never worked well. It didn't make for a, you know, a good family life, and it actually complicated child-rearing. So polygamy was never a good idea. And uh, here Jacob uh, has now found himself in a different situation than he thought, and so he comes up with a different solution, and that would be to marry both. And I would want to say... Uh, God never contradicts his will, uh, his word, with his will. So here Jacob is married to the, to the wrong girl, at least from his vantage point. He's married to Leah. It wasn't what he was expecting. And uh, Jacob is tricked into marrying Leah instead of Rachel because Laban said he had to do it this way. And you read the story and you think, yikes, that's quite an important detail. Don't you think in seven years, Laban could have thought to just mention that thing? You know, oh, I've been meaning to tell you, actually. Ah, you know, just how it works. I think Jacob would have gotten business to try and find somebody to marry Leah at that point. You know, made some friends. Hey, I got to introduce you to this lady. I'm telling you, she's amazing. She is amazing. But it's not what happened. And uh, 
So, okay, we read the story, and I think you, it's, it's not hard to think like Jacob thought as you read the story. You think, wait a minute, this is unethical. He was not honest with me. Now I'm married to the wrong girl. This isn't right. This isn't fair. And, uh, but that is exactly the situation. I want to challenge you at this point. You know, Jacob did marry Leah. He was married to her. They had a honeymoon. They were married. And even though it was different than he thought, he was married to this woman. So what is Jacob's solution? Oh, I'll marry them both. Whatever, it doesn't matter to me. And so his solution goes outside of the perfect will of God. God's will is for one man, one woman, for a lifetime. And he thinks, I got a better idea. I'm going to marry both. So then thirdly, I want you to catch this, and that would be this. When life throws you a curveball, don't miss God's hand at work in it. When life throws you a curveball, don't miss God's hand in it. And I understand at this point in our discussion, this is awkward because you think, but wait a minute. He married a girl he didn't want to marry in circumstances that clearly to us seem unethical. How are you being so favorable to that situation? But just follow along. When life throws you a curveball, don't miss God's hand at work in it. Leah was his first wife. Leah was the wife of his covenant. Plus, Leah was the one God chose for Jacob. In fact, Leah was God's will for Jacob. Laban's sin can't change what God can do through even unfortunate circumstances. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what makes a wife a good wife. You ladies should uh, aim to be good wives someday. And uh, here's a couple thoughts about what makes a, a wife a good wife. Uh, Titus 2.4 says that a wife should love her husband. She should have love for her husband. Ephesians 5.33 says that a, a, a good wife should reverence her husband. First uh, Peter 3.6 actually talks about how Sarah, Jacob's uh, grandmother, called Abraham Lord. So there should be not even just a reverence, but a whole heart given where her husband is able to guide in her life, and her heart is toward him, no holdback. Those are some of the characteristics of a good wife. Well, in the story, uh, apparently it seems, the way that I read it, is that he had married Leah, kind of against his will, and uh, within a short amount of time, then he marries Rachel. So it seems like he worked seven years to get Rachel, ends up being Leah, And then he contracts for seven more years to marry Rachel. So the way I read the story, I hope I'm reading it right, is that they marry essentially at the same time. So he marries both these ladies at the same time. And apparently, in his favoritism toward Rachel, she is the favored wife. So let me just go back to the text here. Uh, Look at uh, 2931. It says, And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, um, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, and listen to what she says, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Notice when she names her uh, her firstborn, she names him with reference to her husband. So here Leah is not even as focused on this baby that she got, which I'm sure was a blessing to her, She's thinking, now maybe I will get the relationship with this man that I love. 
Then she has another son. Uh, this son, uh, it says that she conceived again and bare a son, and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means hearing. And again, she's totally with reference to her husband. Now he's going to love me. She conceived again, verse 34, and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I've borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi, which means joined. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. And I think there's a huge revelation to who, who Leah is by the very way she names her children. And in all of those names, Judah's a little bit different, but in the first three boys, they're always with reference to her husband. She just wants a relationship with this man. She loved Jacob. And uh, to be honest with you, you kind of wonder why. But she loved him. And she was hoping that with every child, her heart, his heart would be turned toward her. And apparently it doesn't, not at this point in the story. Despite all this, Jacob still loved Rachel more than Leah. When Rachel saw that she was barren, according to the text, she envied her sister. And she shows her colors in an altercation with her husband. Look at chapter 30. It says, When Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in God's stead who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? And here's a little bit of a revelation then about who Rachel is. We don't know a lot about Rachel up to this point other than she's beautiful, according to the passage. We, we don't know anything about her other than her and Leah marry the same man. And uh, no doubt there's infighting, especially based on the way that Leah's responding to this. And Leah's so badly trying to get the heart of her husband. And uh, Rachel's not having children. She's feeling uh, inferior, insecure toward her sister. And uh, then she gets in a little bit of an argument with her husband, and her husband recognizes, lady, I can only do so much in this thing. If God's not giving you children, what can I do about it? And I think it's interesting, one of the only communications in the story between Jacob and Rachel is an argument. And I think it tells a little bit about Rachel. Uh, Rachel might have been beautiful, but she seemed very self-willed. She definitely didn't seem, in this story, she wasn't just sweet in that sense. I don't want to say too much about her from one, one, uh, one incident, but she certainly doesn't show herself well at this point. And it's kind of like this. Jacob looks at, the, at her and thinks, man, she's pretty, but she's driving me crazy. Um, an ungodly wife humiliates and harasses her husband. She's not a helper. She's a hindrance. She's as rottenness to his bones, Proverbs 12. Um, by her haranguing, she makes him miserable. Uh, Proverbs 19.13, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. And uh, so just trying to compare these two. So you have Leah, and she's showing her heart toward her husband. Rachel is showing her heart, in a sense, toward herself. Rachel is showing selfishness. Leah is showing selflessness. And then you have the rest of the story where they have their handmaids get involved. And uh, the naming of kids tells even more of just the wrestling between the two of them. There's a story about some mandrakes where uh, Rachel endeavors to buy uh, this Mandrake from her sister, and in ancient tradition, it would have been some sort of a uh, fertility uh, type uh, medication. It would have helped Rachel conceive. 
But in order to get the mandrake, she has to let Leah be with her husband first, which gives you the impression that Jacob was living with Rachel, not with Leah. And uh, so Jacob ends up being with Leah again. She conceives again. And in, in a certain sense, Rachel's scheme of the mandrakes backfires. Leah has another one, has another one. And so Leah ends up with six boys and then one girl. And uh, each handmaiden has two. And then as the story goes on, I'm actually almost done. I'm just going to draw, draw uh, close with this one last little bit here. But as we come to the end of the story, <clears throat> Rachel does finally get humble before God. And I don't know all of what happens in her heart, but it says that God saw Rachel. Ah, i got to find it. Um, verse 22, chapter 30, God remembered Rachel. And God hearkened to her and opened her womb. She conceived, bare a son, and she said, look at this, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Now, I don't know how, how she knew that other than God must have shown her. So somewhere God did gain the mastery of Rachel's life. But when you look at the story, Rachel had two, ends up dying uh, in childbirth with the second, right? You remember the story. And you kind of get the impression from the story she dies young. She dies young. She's not able to raise her boys. She dies in childbirth of the second. Uh, both of the handmaidens live longer, uh, and then Leah outlives all of them. And um, who gets the greatest blessing in the story? Well, far and away, Leah does. Leah has as many children herself, plus a daughter, as many sons herself, as all three of the other women combined. And uh, no doubt about it in the Bible record, children are a heritage of the Lord. And God shows his honor toward Leah in the story. So I just want to end with this thought here. Uh, Jacob then, as, as he develops in his life, ends up becoming Israel. And uh, God certainly does reviving work in his life. When Jacob gets to the end of his life, he makes a statement that we've already read, but I think is actually very shocking. And go back to Genesis 49 as we conclude. And uh, we already read this, but Jacob describes where he wants to be buried and says this is a cave where they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And also at this cave where they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. You might remember in the story that Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. She was not buried in Hebron. She's not buried in the same place as all of the honored patriarchs and their wives were buried. And Jacob makes it very clear here that he buried Leah in honor. And here's the principle I want to leave with you today, and that's simply this. You know, at the end of Jacob's life, he makes a statement that I, I've always been struck with, and that is that he buried Leah in honor. He never makes a negative comment about Rachel. Rachel had to be buried where they were at the time. But I think it's not just happenstance that Jacob buried Leah there. I think it proved that in the end of his life, Jacob recognized the blessing of God on my life followed Leah. And he buried her in honor. My wife came across this quote the other day. I think it's very interesting. I thank God for protecting me from what I thought I wanted and blessing me with what I didn't know I needed. And I don't know if this is a life principle, but I think so often God's will will present itself to us as tender-eyed. You're trying to decide between this or that, uh, this decision, that decision, this purchase, that purchase. 
And God's will will present itself often to us as tender-eyed. It's just that idea. But I want to challenge you that often God presents his will to us tender-eyed because he wants to know, are we willing to follow his will? And if God's will to us was presented as beautiful and well-favored, we might actually miss it as our will still drives. And God wants our will to be dealt with by presenting his will often. I'm not saying every time, but often in a tender-eyed package. I thank God for protecting me from what I thought I wanted and blessing me with what I didn't know I needed. Let's pray about it. Lord, I do pray that you would help these students here. And uh, The message here talked so often, just talked about marriage and these two different ladies and and Lord, but we know that in, in a myriad of ways in our lives, we are having to wrestle with what does your will look like? And are we really willing to follow your will when your will seems to us tender-eyed? But Lord, we do believe that whatever your will is for us, no matter how it presents itself to us, it's always the best way. It's the beautiful way. And uh, Lord, I pray for each of these students that they would approach their lives and decision-making based on not sight and what they think or how they feel, but embracing the beauty of your will, even if it presents in a way that seems plain. Lord, I pray that we would accept your will as beautiful, because in fact it is.